The text for Pastor John's sermon this morning is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. If you're using a, a Bible from the pew in front of you, that's page 980, 980. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. I'd like to begin this morning by trying to bring us up to date on where we've come in this series on Christian hope. Uh, we're 11 weeks into it, and you may remember that the first question we asked 11 weeks ago was, what is hope? And we answered from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, that hope, Christian hope, is not this, a finger-crossing wish that daddy might get home on time for supper tonight so we could have playtime, but he might not. But rather, hope is a full assurance and a confident expectation of good things to come. And then we asked, secondly, why hope? Is there any reason to hope, any ground for sinners to hope? And we answered with two words, grace and gospel. From 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, it said, The Lord Jesus Christ loved us and gave us good hope through grace. So because God is a God of grace, there can be hope for sinners. And the other one was Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Do not drift away from the hope of the gospel. And so there can be hope for sinners because there's a gospel of a Christ who died for sinners. There can be hope because there is grace and there is gospel. And then we ask the question, but how can I, a sinner, come to hope because I don't love God, I don't believe in Christ, and I don't care if I believe in Christ. And therefore, how can there be any hope for me? And we gave the answer, new birth. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused me to be born again unto a living hope. It was God who came into my life, quickened me when I was dead, and brought me to a living faith that has born hope in my life. The Spirit blows where He wills and quickens dead sinners so that they trust and hope in God. There is hope even for people who don't want to believe. And then we asked, 
How is hope sustained once it's born? And we answered, the Word of God, the promises of the Scripture. Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that by the steadfastness and the and the hope of the or by the steadfastness and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope is sustained in the daily battles of life by going to the word, being instructed, and being given promises and threats that lure us on and kick us in the pants. Without the word of God, nobody maintains hope in God. And then we came to the big question, what's the content of our hope? What is it that we actually hope in? What are we looking for out there and setting our hope on? And we gave three answers. Today, we'll give a fourth answer. Next Sunday, we'll give a fifth answer. We said, number one, we are hoping in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. And then we said we are hoping in the redemption of our bodies so we won't get sick anymore, Romans 8, 23. And then we said we're hoping in the consummation of our righteousness so we won't sin anymore, Galatians 5, 5. And then we mingled in three special days. On Mother's Day... We looked at holy women who hope in God, 1 Peter 3, 5. On Christian Education Sunday, we looked at educating for hope, Psalm 78, 7. And on Father's Day, we looked at fathers who give hope to their children, Colossians 1 or Colossians 3, verse 21. And today... We ask that big question again, what are we hoping for? And we answer, the glory of God. So we wait. We're awaiting people, aren't we? The assumption of all of these messages is that hope is an essential part of saving faith. It is not icing on the cake. I am not preaching merely to spread the cake of faith with the icing of hope. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, which is just another way of saying faith is hope. If you have no hope in God, but you hope in money or job or health or family, you don't have saving faith. If all you do in your saving faith is look backward to what Jesus did and not forward to what he promises, you don't have saving faith. Saving faith hopes in Christ, in what he did and on the basis of what he did, what he promises to do. You can't get victory over one sin by looking back. The only way to get victory over sin is by hoping in the power of God, the love of God, the grace of God, that everything tomorrow is going to work for you. Then you have power to overcome sin. So the assumption of all these messages is 
I'm trying to save sinners and save saints. That's what I'll try to do the rest of my life. That saints might persevere and that sinners might be converted. Today, we hope for the glory of God. Let's look at these two verses at the beginning of Romans 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, We have, or let us have, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God, or more literally and simply, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And that's the phrase I want to look at with you. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You can see that it has three parts. And I want to try to unfold and unpack for you three wonderful truths from these verses or from these words, the end of verse 2. Number one, the glory of God is very great. Number two, the hope of the glory of God is rock sure in Jesus Christ. And third, the hope of the glory of God fills the heart with joy and with exaltation. Let's look at them one at a time. First, and we'll spend most of our time on this one, the glory of God is very, very great. I get that from two things in the phrase. First, it says that the mere hope for this glory, not even the having of it, just the hope in it fills the heart with exultation. So it must be very great. And the second thing is that it's called God's glory. Since God is a very great God, His glory must be very great. I wonder how many of you saw the catechism in the star this week and did anything with it. It went like this, question, what is God? And it answered, God is spirit, infinite Eternal, unchanging, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I wonder if anybody memorized that catechetical question and answer, or if any five-year-olds made a stab at it. If you say to me this morning, Pastor, that question is a hopeless question for five-year-olds. God is over a five-year-old's head, too. Take one piece of it, or two, put it on his level, 
and let him just wonder about the rest. And you will have ministered very significantly. Don't think that the only thing valuable to say to five-year-olds is what they can grasp. Make them stretch. Make them full of mystery and wonder about these awesome titles of God. Well, God is very great. That's the point of that question and that answer. And therefore, His glory is very great. And God has been good to us in the Holy Scriptures, especially in the New Testament, to just display diamond after diamond that reflects the greatness of the glory of His name. And what I want to do on this first point is show you 11 of these things in Scripture. Very briefly, to each one. How does God show that His glory is great in Scripture? Number one, you won't have time to look up all these Scriptures, so you can either just jot them down or sit back and enjoy hearing the Word of God. Romans 11.36 stresses that God's glory is great because it is eternal. It goes like this. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. In other words, God's glory is never going to come to an end. God's glory is great in durability. God's glory is great in permanence. Second, it's very closely related. God shows His greatness, the greatness of His glory, by contrasting it with the glories of the world that are very ephemeral. For example, 1 Peter 1.24, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the, flory, the glory, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Now, what does the word flesh mean in that verse? All flesh is like grass. I think flesh means everything that is not spiritual. All the glory that this world offers as a substitute for God will vanish. All of our engineering glory and all of our architectural glory, the skyline of Minneapolis, that beautiful city, all of our artistic glory, all of our electrical glory and atomic glory, and today, computer glory. It's like grass, and it's glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers, the flower falls, and so does everything in this world. C.S. Lewis preached a sermon in 1941, wartime, called The Weight of Glory. It's printed in a little book by that title. Get it and read it. He said, The nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours like the life of a gnat. Ours. And if it's true, and it is, that their life, the life of all the glory of cultures and civilizations 
and arts and architecture and engineering and great computer feats is like the life of a gnat compared to our glory and our durability as humans, then how much greater is God and His glory in whom we are like gnats who live and move and have our being. The glory of God is very, very great. Third, God shows the greatness of His glory by speaking of its might and its power. Colossians 1.11 says, May you be strengthened with all power according to the might of His glory. And 2 Thessalonians 1.9 flips it and speaks of the glory of His might. And I look at those two and I say, yes, both. When His glory shines forth, it is powerful. When His power is displayed, it is glorious. And so He demonstrates for us how to get a proper sense of proportion about the glory of God. Namely, dwell upon the power of the Almighty. Ask yourself, what is the power of a God of whom it is said in Isaiah 40, He weighs the mountains in a scale and measures the oceans in the palm of His hand. What's the power of a God of whom it is said in Daniel 4, He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay His hand or say to Him, What doest thou? What is the power of a God of whom it is said in Hebrews 1.3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Why does this universe stay in existence? Because God just goes on saying, Be there. Be there. Be there. He doesn't even have to say it out loud and worry Himself. But if he were to stop thinking, universe, be there, it would vanish and never be again. The glory of God is very great because it is the glory of his power and his power upholds the universe. Fourth, he makes his glory known and the greatness of it by telling us that it was by his glory that he performed great acts of redemption. For example, Romans 6.4. Did you ever notice? We were buried with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by... By what? By the glory of the Father. Is the resurrection a great thing? Is the hope of millions upon millions of saints to be raised because of the resurrection of Jesus, a great thing? If it is, then the glory of God is a great thing because this text says it was the glory of the Father that burst the bonds of death and brought light and immortality, life and immortality to light. The glory of God is a great glory. It raised Jesus from the dead. Fifth, 
God presses the greatness of His glory upon our minds by referring again and again to the wealth or the riches of His glory. Again and again in the Apostle Paul. For example, Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. He's saying, I compare my glory to a great Fort Knox full of gold. It is infinitely wealthy. And I have done everything I've done in history that I might display the wealth of my glory to the vessels of mercy for whom I have prepared this very thing. Sixth, God highlights the greatness of His glory by telling us that the joy of experiencing it will so far outweigh all the sufferings of this life that it will be as though they had never happened. Romans 8, 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. No matter how much you have to suffer in this world, when the glory of God is displayed to you, when the glory of God surrounds you and catches you up and glorifies you, you will look back and it will be as though those sufferings never existed nor could be brought in any way into comparison to the glory of God in terms of intensity or endurance. And number seven just expands this same point a little further by the phrase weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this slight momentary affliction, and let me mention there that Paul means a lifetime of suffering. That was it for Paul. A lifetime of suffering. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now, did you notice the two words that are being contrasted in that verse? A slight affliction and a weight of glory, a momentary affliction and an eternal weight of glory. Momentary, eternal, light or slight and weight. In other words, well, let me just ask you, does anybody here have a weight, a heaviness in your life? Does anyone here carry a heaviness that seems to go on day after day and year after year? Of course you do. All of us do to one degree of another or another. Well, here's what the meaning of this verse is. This verse says that there's coming a day when there will be displayed to you and offered to you the glory of God that will be so heavy, so weighty, that when it's put in the scales of your life for your enjoyment, all the sufferings and the miseries and the heaviness of your life will go up like air in the balances. Paul calls it 
a light, a momentary affliction that I have been stoned to death, that I have been beaten with rods, that I have been whipped 39 times, five times, that I have been imprisoned, that I have had sleepless nights and been hungry and never married. It's just light. It's just a moment when I think of the glory of God that will be shown to me when he comes. Eighth, God causes us to see his glory is very great by telling us that the great punishment of unbelievers at the end of the age will be exclusion from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 At the coming of Christ, unbelievers will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. My mother died in 1974. I was 28 years old, teaching over at Bethel, got the phone call during interim. Five months later, my father sold the house in which I grew up. I went back in the summertime, to help him take care of some things. I had one more chance to walk through that house. That is a moving experience. You ever done that before? Every room, you see her and you see yourself, and it is the last time you will never go home again. And as I was thinking about this point yesterday, I thought to myself, that was really deep. That was really moving. But the tragedy and the grief of that moment is nothing compared to the tragedy and the grief when unbelievers are turned out from the glory of God and the presence of the Lord. Why? Because that's our home as human beings. We were made for God. We were made to enjoy the glory of God. If you have any longing in your heart, you know what it's really a longing for? It's a longing for God and the glory of God, being at home with God. And there's going to come a day when if you have not trusted in Christ and walked in fellowship with Him, and obeyed His Word, you're going to be turned away. And there will be in your heart forever and ever and ever a homesickness and a heart sickness that will compound the suffering of the lake of fire beyond measure. Don't live a life that will result in being turned away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Nine. The Lord pictures the greatness of His glory by showing us that it's someday going to replace the sun for our light. Revelation 21, 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light, 
and its lamp is the Lamb. This is great. Today, we're going to have a picnic. We need the sun. It gives us light and warmth. It holds our planet in being. It's just a little reflection. It's just a little ping pong ball symbol of the glory of God. Because there's one day coming a revelation of glory that is going to make that sun utterly dispensable. And it will just pop and we won't miss it at all because we will be surrounded by the glory of God and our moon will be the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It is a great glory. Ten, the Lord magnifies the greatness of His glory by revealing it to us in awesome settings of heavenly worship. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and therein they were saying to Him who sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now why are we given glimpses of heavenly worship like that? Well, it's to suck us in and help us feel what He's like. What His glory is in its greatness and how much worth it has to His creatures who see the way the angels see. Finally, number 11. We are made to see the greatness of the glory of God when Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus reflects the glory of God and is the exact image of his character. I love this verse because now I know the glory of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The glory of God is not merely a distant and strange and fearful reality. I know the glory of God. It has appeared among us full of grace and truth, John says. When the glory of God appears, it is going to be full of grace and truth. That's the moral character of the glory of God. And no one in Christ needs to fear the glory of God. So that's point number one. The glory of God is very great. Point number two. We only hope for it now. And our hope is rock sure. I say we only hope for it even though the heavens declare the glory of God. You're going to see some of it at the picnic today. 
The firmament declares his handiwork. Night unto night pours forth speech about the glory of God. Jesus is his exact representation. And yet we hardly know the glory of God at all. We hope for the glory of God. It is distant. It is over the horizon. It is far away. But it is coming. And the certainty that we have that it will be our delight and not our destruction can be rock sure. How so? Well, these two verses have three phrases. Three magnificent phrases that are calculated by the inspired apostle to give solidity and firmness to our hope in the glory of God. Phrase number one, justified by faith. Phrase number two, at peace with God. Phrase number three, the grace in which we stand. Suppose that this text, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is fulfilled in your heart today, and you whistle your way to work tomorrow full of hope in the glory of God. And someone at work looks at you and says, why are you so happy today? And you say, it hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday in church that I am going to share in the glory of God. You may not say it that loud. And they say to you, and just how do you know that? And you say, Because I'm justified by faith. And because I have peace with God. And because I stand surrounded by grace. And suppose under the leadership of the Holy Spirit they say, and just how did you obtain access to that? Great, it's all right here in this verse. Two, two little verses, it's all here. It's awesome. And so you say to them, and, and the love starts to twinkle in your eye because you feel the Holy Spirit at work in this situation, and you say, by Jesus, Jesus. By Jesus, I have been justified. That means acquitted from all my sins and, and counted righteous in His presence. Because of Jesus, God's enmity towards me has been removed and we're reconciled. We're not enemies anymore. We're friends. And because of Jesus, I have got access into a sea of grace in which I stand and live. And therefore, I know that I will inherit the glory of God. And as they're silent, you will say to them what I say to each one of you right now. You know... You can have that too. You can have access to that too. Justification. Reconciliation with God. A sea of grace in which to stand. Firm hope in the glory of God. 
if you'll just turn from your sin and trust Him. He did it all. And that's point number two. Point number one, the glory of God is very great. And point number two, the hope of the glory of God is as rock sure in Christ as the character of Jesus. Well, the third point is really not a point so much as an opportunity for you to respond. It says we rejoice, we rejoice, we exult in the hope of sharing the glory of God. The reason that we can always rejoice, Paul does say rejoice always, and again I say to you rejoice, the reason that you can rejoice always is not because the Christian life is easy. It isn't. Not because there are no heavinesses, no burdens, no tragedies, no grief. The reason you can always rejoice is because, number one, the glory of God is very great and never changes. And two, your hope in the glory of God can be as rock sure as the character of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice. Again I say, rejoice.